This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Robert O'Reilly. My name is Gowron. Honor to you and your house. You're listening to Trek FM. Welcome listeners to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Amy Nelson, and joined with me today are Richard Marquez and Justin Ozer. Richard, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Um... Getting over a chest cold, and um, no thanks to climbing Long's Peak, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm doing well. Awesome. And Justin, yourself? I'm doing well. Yeah, great to be here again. I know we had a jam-packed episode last week with all the Standard Orbit crew, and now that it's only three of us, it's like, oh. I know, three. we have space here. <laughs> it's not as crowded. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, it's great to always be with you guys talking about the next generation. It is. Well, we have some uh, feedback from our listeners group on the Babel Conference, and this is for Earl Grey episode 226, The Lost Episodes, part one. That was a really fun uh, beginning series that we're going to be doing, and it was, uh, let's read Wes Huntington's comment. He says, I'm glad that I was way off on my prediction for Terminus. I actually looked it up after I made my prediction. Either would have been a great season one episode with some revisions, because let's face it, besides a few good strong episodes, conspiracy comes to mind as a strong one, season one has aged really badly in terms of episode quality. Can't wait for more of these lost episodes. Side note, that episode you couldn't think of the name was Up the Long Ladder from season two with the clones on the planet Mariposa. Well, thank you, Wes, for listening and clearing up what we couldn't remember up the long ladder. Though I am a little more fond of season one than I think Wes is. Yes, I think we all are. <laughs> Chris Rebecca says, uh, it is always cool to hear about lost episodes. I wish there were books like These Are the Voyages for the short ones. I love reading about the episodes that never made it or a concept that uh, that got changed from a story to uh, story idea to execution. <laughs> Very much so. I wish there I wish there was um, uh, books like that as well. I mean, it would be uh, it would it would uh, I would love to see hear what their uh, what the writers' thoughts were after the fact after they made it and uh, see where the episode would could have gone for them. 
Yeah, there aren't books like that for besides, I think, TOS and TNG, but there's some good information on Memory Alpha. They have a an article dedicated to each show and movie, I think, showing what some of those kind of lost episodes or things that didn't make it are. So, Yeah, well, keep on something. listening as we continue our series on lost episodes. So. Yeah, so Zach Moore said, Data's origin here lines up with his backstory on his Galoob action figure. And then he posted a picture, and on the back of the package, it has a picture of Data, and it says, Origin, Android fabricated by unknown aliens. <laughs> so that that definitely fits with what we heard about in the last episodes, where he was fabricated by some aliens, entities or something, and not a human like Noonien Sung. So very interesting that they had that information when they were making the toy. Yeah, definitely. And Greg Malumbi says, I hope the more you guys get into this, the more we might see lost episodes in the later seasons. It was interesting hearing various ideas that did actually see the light of day, such as Worf's right of ascension or things that led to the crystalline entity. I like the first story more than the second, by the way. Yeah, thanks, Greg. And definitely we'll be getting into later seasons. This is just the start. There's tons of these. <laughs> so we're starting on season one and moving forward, may go back and forth, but there's going to be things for all the different seasons and some of the movies. So we'll get there. Yeah. And we had some feedback on our mothers on TNG. That was Earl Grey episode 227. Richard, you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, Pierre LaRocco said, you can really tell how much Worf cares about his mother in the episode Homeworld. Or home, homeward, homeward, <laughs> uh, where his first reaction to his brother is, "What would mother think?" I think that uh, that is so powerful that he cares uh, about his mother to think about uh, to think of her first. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. It's something <clears throat> I definitely didn't think about because she doesn't appear in that episode, but she's mentioned. She is. <laughs> so it's a, it's a great point. And then Patrick Carlin says, Loved hearing how Amy got into Trek by watching it with her mom. It was the same for me. Some of my earliest memories from when I was no more than three or four are of watching TOS with her on our small black and white TV in the living room. Yes, we love our mothers. And yes, I just have to agree. It brings back that nostalgia of, you know, watching it originally with family members and, you know, specifically like Patrick and myself with our mothers, so... Very nice memory. Well, today we are going to talk about the episode, The Wounded. And this came about uh, because we were talking about season four character moments. And we really brought up some amazing scenes from this episode and realized there's so much here to talk about. It definitely deserves its entire episode on its own. So that is what we're going to be doing today. Uh, first, we've got to the introduction to the Cardassians. And when you first heard the Federation had been in a long conflict with the Cardassians up until the year before the wounded, and now they're allies, were you guys surprised about this? Well, I think the first time that, that I, I saw that, like, and by that point, I had, I was seeing TNG a lot later, but um, I, I didn't know kind of how the Cardassians would be used. I thought it was just maybe something that week. So I, I honestly didn't think about it too much until later, although it, it is like there's been this really long drawn out conflict that just ended last year and you'd never heard of it before. 
I guess that can happen on something episodic, but I, I was a little bit surprised, but didn't think about it more until I rewatched after seeing how important the Cardassians become. And I was like, wait a minute, we should have seen more of that. So, mm. um, Well, you also got to remember that uh, when this episode aired, um, this was uh, January 28th of 1991. This was right before Operation Desert Storm was just about to commence. Um, and, you know, we were having problems with Iraq at that time. And, and whatnot, you know, based on Saddam Hussein's uh, improper uses or, yeah, uses of chemical weapons. And, I mean, it definitely foreshadows uh, what was going on in the world at that time. And, um, you know, it truly was a scary time because I had, like, almost nine members of my family uh, over there. So, um, yeah, definitely a scary time. I mean, and then to add... Um, to put a twist like the, I mean, I honestly not even thinking about it uh, back when I was a child, because I don't think I was really watching Star Trek at that at that moment, because um, we uh, the entire base was basically a lockdown, and we were like, <laughs> we were like, oh, what's gonna ha- what's gonna happen? So um, yeah, uh, definitely uh, thinking about it in that time frame when I was a child uh, when this episode aired, uh, it I, it definitely brings a certain um, uh like nostalgia or scary nostalgia for this episode that's for sure yeah yeah that's interesting i hadn't thought about that time period that that it aired right after the the gulf war started and i mean they had written it some months before but that whole situation started the previous august so while they were writing it that was going on so i wonder if that might have influenced them in some way but that's tied to what you think about for that period that's interesting Yeah, and this is an unusual episode where we have, like, the alien species is the Federation's ally and a human-commanded Federation starship is the enemy. Like, it just sort of flips it. I think that was pretty brilliant on the writer's part there. Like, we don't see that normally, you know? It's usually the aliens that are the bad guys, quote-unquote. Yeah, I think I think that's the case. Although as I was thinking about this, I was trying to think like where else in Star Trek have you seen something before this, you know, quite like that. I mean, and there and there are times I think where someone's commanding a starship and they've gone a little crazy like in the original uh series there are a couple of places like that, but it's not like there's an alien species that you're working with that are your allies even after a long conflict and this human starship is is your enemy. So you get into this uncomfortable situation where Picard has to think about firing on another Federation ship and someone I think he knows well and and uh, is someone who has a lot of prestige. So it, it is really, I think that's one of the things that makes it a great episode because it's flipping things a little bit and you don't quite know what to expect from it the first time. Well, and I like how we're introduced to three Cardassians, and it sort of gives us the spectrum of how people uh, are going to think and behave and, you know, with their actions. Like we get uh, Golmaset and we have Glendaro and Glentilly. Um, Glendaro is the Cardassian in 10 Forward and the one in the turbo lift with you know, we, he seems to be very reasonable and sympathetic. He's trustworthy. He's reaching out, you know, trying to build commonalities. And then we have Glentilla, who tries to get unauthorized access to the Enterprise computer. He's obviously untrustworthy and trying to get gain for Cardassia. And then we have Golmaset, who seems, you know, sometimes genuine, 
for his concern for preserving the peace. But at other times, he definitely wants the advantage for Cardassia. Like, we get this spectrum when these three characters, um, you know, with how they are reacting to this peace treaty. And I think it really says a lot for, you know, how people in society deal with unexpected or, you know, these, oh, now all of a sudden there are allies. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it is interesting. They chose these three characters and they're kind of a spectrum. Be, I mean, sometimes I think you'll see that with alien species if they look more human, but they, the Cardassians look very different. They're very kind of reptilian or snake-like or something like that. But So they seem very different, but they were smart enough, I think, in this episode to, to, to say, like, not all Cardassians are bad or untrustworthy there are some i mean like darrow in particular i mean throughout the episode he seems pretty reasonable is tired of war uh talks to o'brien and is open to him so that's that's great to see and Massette's kind of somewhere in between the guy who's trying to break into the computer and the guy who's totally sympathetic because at the end you know that he knows that they're running weapons but he's not going to let on about that until toward the end but he does seem a little tired of the war too so I think they, in one the one episode, they have a pretty nuanced portrayal of the Cardassians. Well, and it's interesting you bring up the look of the Cardassians and as we lovingly call them, our spoonheads, right? <laughs> That's an insult to a Cardassian. Uh, so <laughs> we definitely get a very interesting look at the Cardassians and their ship. There's great uh, scenes out there and, and the battle there. And well, I guess a little bit, but... What, what do you think of the Cardassian look, their uniforms, and their ship? Well, I the, I think the look is very interesting, although from here until you see them later, it changes because they get a lot grayer. <laughs> They're kind of a little, I don't know what color, kind of like whitish and reddish, brownish or something. So that changes a little bit. Their uniform changes a lot because they're wearing like this weird brown kind of padding and this like headgear that you never see again thankfully so they, I, thankfully yeah I, I think well and, and you know at a certain point they just like take it off and you never really see it after that but um i mean i think it's a, it's a really interesting look and clearly they're alien they're they're quite different their their ships look different i think you see a galler class here which you see a lot later in, in deep space nine especially and it has kind of such a different shape than a federation uh ship and i kind of like how it looks um, so I think they were really taking some time and effort to differentiate themselves from the Federation and humans, especially. It wasn't just like, here's some humans that have some slightly different foreheads or some splotches or, you know, they don't even look different, but you say they're alien. These are, they're quite alien and, and quite different. And that really helps in, in the episode because they have been, you know, adversaries and people are trying to kind of get over that a little bit so i think it works it works pretty well yeah i like their um i, I actually I, th I can't remember where it was um we we discussed the wounded uh briefly about um i don't know maybe a year ago but um i always joked that they were the uh the cleveland browns of the uh of the of space because <laughs> i mean it's it's all brown it looks like a football helmet mi minus missing yeah. certain panels and it looks like they're wearing some kind of plastic bag that's brown uh, or like you know, like uh, like like you're like a like a reusable leather couch or something like that. There you go. That's what it looks like. It looks like a re reused, repurposed leather couch, 
on them. Yeah. And it's like that silver kind, you know, after, or not silver kind, that glossy uh, kind that you, after a while, mm-hmm. it's been used and all that kind of stuff. That kind of, <laughs> that kind of feeling. So um, I definitely love their uniforms, um, or at least, well, I have a big critique. I, I have a really big deal about their their uniforms later on down the road, only because it looks like they're, you know, football players minus the leg pads and all that kind of stuff. Um, but like their ships, on the other hand, I absolutely love um, the the ships. They're, I mean, honestly, if if there was going to be something like what we would probably visualize like later on down the road and, uh, for us or something like that, I can vision something like that uh, because it's more compact. It looks like something that would fly through the air, um, and it looks intimidating. So, um, I definitely uh, think it. Uh, think it, I really like their ships. So, yeah. Well, and I think their whole look was meant, obviously, to be intimidating. I find it interesting though, because like when we see Cardassians, they seem to be the very tall, skinny people, and then they're in these uniforms that like puff them up and make them look larger than they are. And I'm like, no, look at that. That guy's like all skin and bones. And here he's got this big, you know, I just always find that like converse that with Klingons where we see, you know, really big hefty Klingons and, you know, we sort of see the spectrum, but with Cardassians, they seem to be all the tall, lanky, skinny variety. In in TNG, at least you see so many Cardassians and DS9, I think, Amy, that's a bit more of a spectrum. And you mm. do see some of the bigger, different shapes and sizes of people. Yeah. yeah. But Rounder. in TNG, it's it's pretty much what you're saying, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All it's missing is the plastic. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm just like, there's no way that guy's filling up that uniform. It's just all for show. <laughs> Well, I think many would argue that this is definitely an O'Brien episode, and we do learn some things uh, about O'Brien and his uh, past because it's revealed that he was a tactical officer on Maxwell's ship, the Rutledge. Um, So it seems to me like tactical officer seems more important than transporter chief. Like, is that a downgrade? Like, did he get demoted? I mean, what's up with that backstory? So, okay, so here's how I see it. So with this story, obviously without this story, we wouldn't be able to, uh, I wouldn't be able to come up with this little background. But what we have in the military is that, so if someone goes through something like traumatic or something like that, they get reassigned, a desk job Mm -hmm. in a sense. And that's what I think O'Brien got transferred uh, into. Now, obviously, I don't don't think the writers were thinking of it that way, but, um, you know, going from a traumatic event like, uh, uh, like what happened to him on Setlick 3, right? Thank you. Setlick, I was thinking yeah. of the planet. <laughs> uh, like in <laughs> Setlick 3. And, um, you know, going through a traumatic event, like, like he, you know, obviously describes throughout the episode, uh, you know, about war stories and whatnot. Um, yeah, like a transporter chief is like a desk job. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure to a tactical officer uh, or a- anyone. So... Well, but even before that, like an encounter in Farpoint, we see him as the Battle Bridge con officer. So he's, oh, well, he's yeah. going around a little bit to some dip. But yeah, I, I could see that maybe because you can tell from the story that he tells Darrow in 10 Forward that this is very traumatic. It's the first time he's had to kill anyone in his life and it just really affected him. And he saw this big massacre. And yeah, I, I do wonder, like he was a tactical officer and maybe it just affected him so much that they were like, you just need to step back for a little bit. And right 
do something a little different. Yeah, it's a good point. But like, I, I, I almost wanted to see like a flashback of him as a tactical officer, like seeing him doing that, but I'll just have to imagine it. But it's, uh, it's, it's pretty great to, to think that he has that kind of, uh, that kind of background. Yeah. So talking about, I think O'Brien, uh, we definitely get this arc through him and we suspect that obviously at the beginning, we, we see that he definitely does not like Cardassians. And then later on in the episode, it, his iconic line, it's not you, I hate Cardassia. It's I hate what I become because of you. Like, and I had a question, like, we see the arc and, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, but like, what is it in O'Brien? Because I don't think we see it on screen where he makes that transition into not hating the Cardassians like he does at the beginning. I'm wondering what what is it that you think is it in his character? Like what is it that changes that so that he changes, you know, the way he feels? I actually don't think anything has changed. Oh. I think I because I because I I've, I've thought about this each time that I have watched the episode. I think he's telling the truth when he says that that he doesn't hate Cardassians, but like the hostility that Troy picks up and what Keiko is picking up and what you're seeing as a viewer, I think is him thinking about that time on set like three and how difficult it was and how um, he hates what he became because of that. So I don't think the Cardassians themselves is who he hates. It's just that they remind him so much of a really traumatic experience and what he became because of it. At least that's that's how I, I see it. Not that he's changed, but that we get like a further clarification of what's really going on. And he, he does, like he says, I like them fine enough, you know, but he doesn't want to go into that traumatic experience until he's forced to. Right, and I have to agree with you on that one too, Justin. I mean, it's just like any other person um, that's experience any kind of trauma you know you, you can't get into a car because of your you know you, maybe you lost someone or maybe something uh, happened to you that just you know scared you to half to death or something like that and, and in a sense this is the same thing um you know uh i i, I can relate to this uh there was a point in time where uh i couldn't uh i wasn't comfortable around uh, arabic people and that took a couple of years to get used to and uh, I, I, I mean, this episode, I mean, this episode hits more home to me, uh, mostly because it's just, you know, and it, it, it sucks to even think of it that way. I mean, I, I'm not a hateful person either. And I'm not, I'm not a person that, uh, that, uh, wants to think like that. But when in the back of my mind, it's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? You know, it's, it's, I, I mean, I went into, I can't remember where I went. It was. An Arabic uh, restaurant. I can't remember what it, what it was, but I felt so uneasy for some reason. And you know, I was there with a couple friends, and it's just like I had to get out of there. I don't know what it is. And you know, like I said, I'm not hateful towards Arabic people or anything like that. But I understand exactly what uh, what the writers were trying to do with O'Brien in this in this scene, because I I say the same thing. You know, I don't. I don't hate, uh, you know, Arabic people. I hate what happened to me over there. And, you know, I have no ill toward towards any of them. So I understand that completely. 
um, that, and, and, you know, like I said, it, this kind of trauma, it takes years. I mean, it took, it's been what? I went to combat in 2003. So yeah, it's been a good, yeah, 15 years. Yeah. So it's been, it, it probably took me at least 10 years to finally get over that completely. And, um, it was a difficult journey to, uh, to get, to get that out of the back of my mind. Cause now I, cause I, before I used to just watch my back all the time and that was no matter where I was. And, um, yeah, it's, it's very scary to go through that. It really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think what's interesting is we're talking about what we see in, in TNG with O'Brien and Cardassians. We might have a somewhat different conversation if we were talking about what happens in, in DS9, but, yeah. um, I think just strictly if you're looking at it at this point in the wounded, I, I do believe that that's how he feels. He he. It's not that he doesn't like them. It's that he's been so affected by this experience that any Cardassian reminds him of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and so with that said, like at the end of the episode, we see O'Brien become this amazing diplomat when he's talking to Maxwell over on his ship. And, you know, he sort of talks him down Um do we think that that's in O'Brien's character? I mean, we don't really know him as this diplomat and here he steps up and like, what, how do you think he was able to do that when we see his backstory, you know, with the hatred and what he's become because of Cardassia and we see, you know, his trust in Maxwell and now he's being a diplomat and re- really talking him down out of a, a very tense situation. Yeah, and I, I don't know if I had thought of it that way before, like, you know, that, that he becomes a diplomat because he really is kind of negotiating an end to this tense situation. Mm-hmm. I just wonder, is it because he knows Maxwell so well and they serve together, uh, you know, through life and death situations um, and that they connect on this song, which it, it's kind of like, sometimes I wonder like, oh, it's great that they're singing this song, but why is it there? But it's like this kind of connection that goes beyond words it's it's this real um i don't even know how to describe it it's like this brother in arms kind of connection that they have so he's able to kind of negotiate this situation because of that but i wonder if it he didn't know him as well if it would work that way and i don't know anywhere else in tng where we see o'brien quite like that but i think it's really nice and it it works well but yeah Yeah, I think when you are serving, you know, especially in battle, like you do get this bond. I can only think of like when I have taught in at-risk schools and it's like the world is against you. Every student is against you. No one wants to be there. And and we've got this, I mean, these teachers that are there for the right reasons and are supporting the kids and loving the kids. And almost like a war zone. I mean, there were fights at school every day and gangs and like the teachers when I worked with at that, at my last school, like we are still friends. We're still tight because of that bonding that we had, because we had to go in to the trenches, if you will, to teach these kids each and every day. And it just, that bond, I think really connects you. And I think we definitely see that. I don't think it could have been anyone else. Obviously not Mm. Picard. Maxwell had already written him off as being stuffy and, you know, sitting at his desk too long. So, you know, for O'Brien, it, I think he was the only one that could have done that and served the purpose. 
Absolutely, and you know, uh, to, it's uh, to basically move along the line with you on on your on what you're saying, Amy. Um, yeah, it's definitely a different bond. I mean, I remember being in the military too. It's like we're out drinking, you know, whatever, you know, uh, getting each other out of trouble, and then even going down the field. It's it's a it's a bond that you know. You save my life, I save your sort of thing, and you know I'm gonna do whatever I can because you did everything you can to help me out there or wherever. Um, and I, I think anyone can go through that, whether it be like an accident or or anything like that. I, I I don't know if the bond's stronger or not, but I mean I would assume it is, especially if it's a life or death situation for anyone. But like, um, yeah, I mean, being that kind of being having that bond and actually, um, you know. Uh, going through the same exact traumatic events as Maxwell and uh, O'Brien did, for sure, uh, uh, he he would be the, he would have been the only person to uh, to talk him down anyway, just short of destroying the entire ship and killing him, um, because you know he's got that bond and and you know sometimes when you're in that dark place and you're in that zone and the only person that can bring you out is one person and that one person happens to speak and then you're there and it's like, Hey, what's going on? You know? And, um, I think that is a very, very strong statement for, uh, for them to do this to, um, you know, obviously being the tactician that he is that he can get, get through the shield, which now we know. <laughs> yes. Now we know we can get through the shield without, without actually destroying it. Um, for, for certain uh, vessels. Right. Apparently. For certain vessels. <laughs> I can only imagine that be classified beyond anyone, <laughs> but like, uh, to, <laughs> and that they fixed it for something like the enterprise D or right, galaxy. Class, right. Maybe. Uh, so apparently it's not impenetrable so yeah well apparently it's there's even more than that because i think this is going into deep space time so in trials and tribulations i think they end up beaming aboard the enterprise because it has a cycle and there's like a couple seconds gap where they can that's right so i remember that yeah. yep <laughs> so oh, they've closed so the into same a, thing yeah the same kind of thing but it's longer like apparently in the 23rd century and then it gets shorter i guess with this nebula class ship and maybe it's so short that you can't beam through it but yeah they did use that later yeah <laughs> So yeah, it's it's a good thing that they used it this way, and I'm I'm glad that they did. Um, you know, this kind of bond that he that he was able to connect with them and actually talk them down, which was which is great. So yeah, yeah, and I think it's really interesting. They so they sing this song, this minstrel boy song that has all kinds of you know uh, uh, history um, going back to the 18th century. I was looking up a little bit. And, and it's kind of like they connect on that level. And then that's the point at which Maxwell says, I'm not going to win this one, am I, Chief? It's like you completely understand what's going on here. You understand my side. You understand where Picard's coming from. And the best thing is just to go along with what you're saying because I trust you completely. You know, He's gone from the point of like, hey, what are you doing here holding up a phaser to O'Brien to like, you're right. I just need to accept this. So it's it's such a fascinating scene, and it's so good and so effective, and it feels like it could happen because of the connection that they have. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, you know, we get to see Maxwell's character, and we get this a great, tremendous arc with what we see on screen with uh, Captain Maxwell. Like, and we. You're right. That scene is so powerful and it's fine. We get to see this realization. Yeah, he's not going to win this one. And then he makes the comment, well, uh, now I need to find my role in peace. Do we think, what do you think? Do we think that 
he's going to be successful in finding this new role once we've seen how many years he's been in this revenge retribution type of mentality. Are you talking about Maxwell or are you talking about O'Brien? Maxwell. No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, and you, you know, obviously we, okay. So obviously we see in the end of the episode that, um, that he, he doesn't believe, I mean, it's all justified too. I mean, it's all based on, you know, what you see and what you interpret versus, you know, actually seeing what, what's going on, like, you know, smuggling weapons, um, to the border. Um, in, in, in this case that is, um, when it comes to, um, him coming to come to grips, I think he are coming to grips to be in peaceful. I don't think that he'll ever uh, come to that uh, realization. I mean, maybe if you put him on the other side of the frontier or something like that, um, funny enough, he was right about the whole entire, uh, you know, uh, the conflict later on down the road, as we find out in DS nine. Um, but like, um, it's just that I don't believe that a person that's been out in, in a sense, the field, or out in the wilderness, uh, what, whatever you want to call it, um, or uh, you know, but definitely someone on the front line who has seen that kind of uh, deception and you know knows those Cardassians that um, um, what they do um, to deceive the Federation and everything that they're trying to do. Um, for sure, uh, I don't think that he will that he'll ever um, be able to uh, come to grips with making peace with um, the Cardassians. I mean, he'd have to be either taken off being a captain or or do something else like a desk job there you go you can do a desk job but in this case he's probably going to get prosecuted so yeah yeah actually i i want to point out there there's a follow-up novel that came out a few years ago called force in motion it's a ds9 novel that includes o'brien maxwell and nog and it actually takes place 18 years after this. He's been in prison for 18 years. Mm. So for what, at least according to this novel, for what he's done and destroying those ships and killing all of those Cardassians, uh, he goes to prison for a long that. time. Oh. Yeah. It's quite an interesting novel, actually. And, you know, Do you know of what course, it's called? teams up with O'Brien. It's called Force in Motion. Force in Motion. Okay. Yeah, it's, it, it's a pretty good novel. And you get to, but like also it has flashbacks to what happens to him afterward and him trying to adjust and all that. It's, it's actually a really great follow-up. Um, but I would believe that because, you know, he's gone against orders. He's gone into Cardassian space. He's destroyed ships without authorization. So it makes sense he would go to prison for me. Well, and that brings up the question, like, Maxwell is so confident that his actions will be vindicated because he knows what the Cardassians are doing. He knows what they're up to. Like, and you can feel, especially when he's talking with Picard, he doesn't feel that he's being heard. Like he's sent reports to, you know, central command or whatever you want to call it. And, and he's it's trying to explain it to Picard and he's not being heard. So then that's what I think he, he feels that he needs to go and he's supposed to be, you know, taking the ship back and he veers off and goes to this supply ship. Like, he feels that he is right. And, like, Picard, he's more concerned with Maxwell's actions, just his actions alone, and actually says, like, what Cardassia does is irrelevant. Is Picard right to focus only on Maxwell's actions? Like, is doing the wrong thing for the right reason ever justified? Well, I mean, I think... So Maxwell is seeing this in terms of these Cardassians are running weapons. We need to expose this 
he thinks to avoid a war, but for Picard, he's been charged with making sure there are no violations of the peace treaty so that another war doesn't break out. Right, like Picard says at the end, like, you know, if I had boarded that ship, we wouldn't be having this pleasant conversation right now, Golmaset, you know. So, and I think Picard, I mean, like, what, I think we said this before in the character moments. What's interesting is they're both right in a certain sense, right? Maxwell is right about what's going on. And that probably helps later on when there is more conflict with the Cardassians in Deep Space Nine. But Picard is also right because... You know, even if Maxwell is right, is it better for the hostilities to break out now? You know, or is it better to have to be somewhat prepared for that and have that happen some years hence? So it's like they're both right in in their own way, and I I could see it both ways. But for Picard, he's being charged with a mission like keep the peace. You know, make sure that Maxwell doesn't start a war. So he's thinking about like right now what needs to happen. See, I know I really wish they would have like. Um... I mean, uh, uh, to whether to the point whether or not Picard did the right thing or not, I think he did, and and I really wish that it, it probably would have made it a lot stronger had like I don't know um, the commanding um, admiral uh, gave him more intel or something like that on what's going on. We've been receiving reports from him about what's going on that they're being deceptive out there and 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 whatnot. And you know, I I get I get it, you know. Maxwell being a start having a starship with that kind of firepower, I mean, you kind of have to stop someone uh, to, from doing that, especially when you're taking on transports that have no weapons, um, and then especially an adversary, adversary that you know shoots lasers and really doesn't do much damage, as we saw in the beginning of the Wounded. It's like okay, you know, it's a bug bite. Yeah, it does seem like the Cardassians are a little behind the federation at this point, right? And then what? Like two years later, they're like on par with us when it comes to technology. So, um, or like in DS9. Well, I think is. longer than a well, couple of years. Well, you know what I mean? I'm just saying like in the, in the yeah. grand scheme of the seasons that is so, but like, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's, um, you know, a, a, you would think that an adversary, uh, um, you know, adversary to, uh, like the Cardassians, you know, we went through a war and everything and you would have, they would have at least weapons that match us, you know, cause like I can't imagine that we advance that far. It's it's a good question unless they just had so many more ships or something. I don't Maybe, know. It's, I don't know. In some ways, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. But I want to add to what I said before. Like Maxwell is right that there's something going on, but he definitely has the wrong methods. Like he shouldn't be destroying the, these ships and killing hundreds of people. Oh yeah, I totally agree. You know, yeah, with these with these raids. So he's going about it the wrong way. And I also wonder, like, is there another way he could have gotten? Um, attention without destroying ships like this. I, I don't know. I mean, but it but it just seems like, okay, I'm going to prove that there's something going on. Let me invade their space and destroy some ships. I mean, that's just maybe like a if bad you like, idea. Maybe if you like disabled them and then confiscated what was on board and then documented like it and then locked. Yeah. And then that would have been a lot more stronger than, oh, well, they got a higher power signature to mass what's on their ship and all that kind of stuff. So. Probably. Yeah, and, and what I also wonder about is like he's. It seems like he's gotten into a state of mind that's very different because I think he's you know uh, had a pretty good record up to this point, but something happened and it's like he snapped a little bit. But he's also been able to convince you know others on his ship to go along with it. I, I kind of wish we would have seen somebody else that's on his ship so we could see what that interaction's like. But he's the only one that we see on his on the Phoenix, so. 
Well, I think it's, yeah, interesting lesson that we learn. And I think in this episode, it's definitely clear that no, your actions do not, are not justified, no matter what the Cardassians do. I mean, what Cardassia does is irrelevant. And I have... You ever think of Locutus when Picard says that? I it know, is right? I'm like, well, in this episode, no, the ends do not justify the means, you know? And, and I think definitely we see in Star Trek, it goes back and forth with mm, that. Yeah. But I, I definitely have used that term... Uh, what they do is irrelevant when I'm speaking to my students, when they <laughs> decide to make, you know, poor choices. Well, but da, 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 da. no, what they I will deal with them separately. And I think Picard does this great. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. We're going to talk about your actions because you are responsible for your actions. I'll deal yeah. with Cardassia later, you know, sort of what Picard's you know, philosophy is and how he's handling the situation. And watching that scene, I'm just like, man, I have said that so many times to my students. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure every parent could say the same thing. <laughs> exactly, right? We <clears throat> Excuse me. We want to teach our children, you know, that you're responsible for your actions and to make your actions as clean and pure and as proper as possible. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, yeah, Justin, you talked about the mindset of Maxwell. Like, do we think, because we know that his family, uh, his wife and children were killed and at the hands of Cardassia, this raid that happened. and um, But it seems like sort of at the beginning, it was sort of pushed off as, no, he's okay, he's fine, he dealt with it. But do we really believe that? At the end of the episode, is this a revenge retribution story? I tend to think it's both. Like, he he does seem motivated by exposing what the Cardassians are, are doing uh, because he thinks it would, it would be better to do that. But it does seem like there is some motivation or is being uh, in some way spurred on by the memories of what happened at the hands of Cardassians because I think he must think... Like, when we last had a war with the Cardassians, my wife and children died, and lots of other people died. I am doing this, even if I have to sacrifice some people now, I am doing this so that other people don't have to go through that, right? So that so that other people don't have to lose their spouse and their children and all, all that stuff, right? So I think he's motivated by a mixture of both. Yeah, I would say that... Um... Yeah, it's a mixture of both as well. Probably more so the loss of his child. And then, you know, what what bothers me about this uh, as well is that why would you put someone that's been traumatically, um, you know, gotten their wife and child killed, or he, ha uh, he had his wife and child killed by Cardassians and you're patrolling the Cardassian border? That doesn't make sense. Is, but is that what he was doing before this, or did he break off from what he was doing in order to go? Into oh, that's a good point. Space? Yeah, maybe yeah, he went yeah. rogue. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I, I see. Yeah. I I don't know if they really talk about where he was before this or what he was doing. Okay, well then, in that case, then uh, then for sure, uh, I, I I would I would assume that it's revenge because I mean I mean anyone losing their uh, spouse and child, uh, you know, especially at the hands of an um, uh, as someone that like you know the Cardassians. I mean. I mean, come on. I mean, it's it's a no-brainer on that one. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, and when he's when Maxwell is talking to O'Brien toward the end, 
he seems to think he's like reliving it and that's still going on because he says, what the hell has happened to this war? And O'Brien's like, sir, there is no war. The war is over, you know, and he's still kind of reliving it. Um, and, and, and it seems, we were talking before that O'Brien, you know, whether he likes Cardassians or not, but I think it's really clear that Maxwell doesn't because he's, he's saying the Cardassians live to make war. You know, and we don't butcher women and children in their homes and children never got a chance to grow up. So he's painting this picture of all of the Cardassians as living to make war and wanting to, you know, kill people that he loves and cares about. So he's he's still there in that mindset of, of that war. And, you know, you know what I just realized that, you know, him, O'Brien going over to talk to Maxwell, I think that ended it for him. Like in his mind, mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, obviously, mm-hmm. uh he would he would probably be more violent or or maybe more aggressive towards Cardassians, but I think that seeing Maxwell going through that breaking down and uh, going through that kind of hatred and then it destroying him in um, ultimately in the end, um, it, and then for him to witness that that act, that actually just ended it for him. But like I don't want to be like that. I have my whole life and career ahead of me, and then of course probably thinking about family as well. That I don't want to. Um, you know, have Molly at that time to, uh, uh, you know, repeat that behavior. So I, I really think that this was very important for him to actually see that, to have closure to uh, what happened on uh, Sussex Street. So. Yeah, and, uh, and just maybe a little bit more about that. So when O'Brien and Maxwell are talking, they mention um, this other guy that they that they served with and mm-hmm. and that he died and it's like oh what was that song that that he liked and they start singing the minstrel boy which is has traditionally become something that you sing at funerals or that the, where the melody is at a funeral so it's like they're finally kind of burying that that part of it that that they've been living with and that's why he kind of accepts it after that i mean maybe it happens quickly but but that's kind of nice because it is that kind of thing that's meant to bring closure because it's it's used a lot at, at funerals. Oh my gosh. I totally love that. <laughs> oh, Ooh, and I hadn't, that gave that, me well, to chills. Cause yeah, I hadn't <laughs> thought of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just when I was looking up some history of the song, I mean, it's, it's become something as I think, especially among Irish Americans, something that, that is something that's, that's played or sung at a funeral when you're saying goodbye to someone. So yeah, it seems pretty appropriate. Very much yeah. so. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, talk about a little bit about what we learn about Picard in this episode. Uh, we find out that on the Stargazer, he was there to make preliminary overtures to a truce with the Cardassians, um, but he had a very close escape. Uh, so do we think that Picard is affected in his dealings with the Cardassians? What do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think that... I mean, he's affected, but I think in a different way than than Maxwell, because Picard's experience is he was going, I assume, on some kind of diplomatic mission, and and he was fired upon and kind of barely escaped. So his experience, I think, is these Cardassians are dangerous, and we don't want to go to war with them again. Like, he has no sense of wanting revenge or anything like that. So I think usually Picard tends to go the diplomatic route anyway. But I think this reinforces it, like, let's prevent that situation where um, there are other ships that might be barely escaping the Cardassians or getting destroyed. So I think it affects him that way. Yeah, and I don't think it affects him too much. And, and so, so here's, here's the logic I'm going off of. 
So when you fight with an when when you fight with a gun, it's not as personal. But when you, because I mean, you're you can shoot from a distance, and I'm sure that's the same thing with a starship as well. Um, but when you fight hand to hand with a knife, I mean, obviously a knife is a very personal, uh, intimate uh, weapon because you have to come in close. And I'm thinking like, um, so since Picard never really got into that kind of like. Um, like kind of fight with the Cardassians. I mean, yes, he knows that it, they barely got out of there, and um, they, you know they got fired upon and all that kind of stuff, which you know, which is fine. But at the same time, it's a little different when you're fighting ship to ship versus hand person to person. Um, it's a little mm-hmm. bit more traumatic, and um, it's it's far more personal than uh, than you can. I mean, you. I mean, I, I'm sure you can only imagine what it's like. But like, um, it's it's. It's very traumatic. <laughs> that's all I, I mean, really, that, I mean, that's how I'm seeing is that why Picard isn't really more personal into it like, you know, Maxwell is, um, that in how Picard can actually see it from, you know, a distant and look at it from all perspectives versus what Ma- Maxwell went through, which was, like we said, you know, Celtic Street, you know, they went basically went hand to hand on uh, with the Cardassians um, there. So. You know. Yeah, I I agree with you, Richard. I, I think that it doesn't affect Picard as much, obviously, as it does with Maxwell, and and we sort of see that when you know their Maxwell's going away, and and Picard is refusing to give the exact position to Golmaset. Um, however, he's forced to at the end by the circumstances that Maxwell puts him in. But like we can see that Picard. He's just this great diplomat. He's trying to protect the Federation's advantages until his hand is forced. Like he seems to, yeah, be stepped back and and is able to see the bigger picture a little bit more clearly with what this peace treaty means and, and trying to prevent this war by not boarding the ship, by, you know, sharing information and going along with everything so, so I think I think that Picard does do a good balancing act uh, in, in trying to be diplomatic, but also trying to make sure you know that he's doing everything to pursue Maxwell. But there is one thing that happens that I question because I think they're following, and one of the uh, Cardassian ships gets destroyed by uh, by the Phoenix, and then you find out that they've been going warp four and, and Picard's like increase to warp nine. I'm like, why weren't you going warp nine the whole time in order to get there as quickly as you can? I don't know. It's one of those things that happens in TNG a couple of times, but overall I think he's doing well, but I think like, did that ship get destroyed because he wasn't going warp nine the whole time? <laughs> That's funny. Cause Maybe. when I was watching, my brother sort of said the same thing and it's like, they're like, why aren't they going faster? Why are they going so slow? It's not like there's a speed limit in space. And I'm it's like... It's before that seventh season episode with the speed oh, limit. Oh, was that season <laughs> oh, seven? Was it? Was like, oh, That's season seven. Yeah, it's before okay. that. Oh, my, way before that. And so yeah. I was telling my brothers, I'm like, yes, there's yeah. a speed limit. There's a whole episode about it. But apparently yeah. my timeline but, is but switched. It, <laughs> and, it, and it's even like, oh, you know, Data, how long until we intercept the Phoenix? Like at our present speed of warp four, 16 hours, 44 minutes. Like 16 hours? Like this is happening right now. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, one of those things. But overall, I think he does a really good balancing act, and and he does accomplish his mission because he gets um, Maxwell and takes him into custody, and then he also makes sure to to preserve the peace. Although you know some ships get destroyed, but I think overall he does a good job of balancing. That's a really tough thing to balance, I think. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. You know, and talking about that balancing act, I love the scene when uh, Glenn Till is brought to the bridge because his hand's been caught in the cookie jar, right? <laughs> and uh, Golmaset asked to speak to Picard privately in his ready room. And they have this interchange that's like, Picard says, we must not allow one man to undermine the purpose of lasting peace. And that idea, when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, we've totally seen this scene before. Um, if you remember in Loud as a Whisper, when the two facets come to meet for the first time and then they uh, kill Reva, the mediator, the deaf mediator, if you remember, listeners. And I'm like, that was the exact terminology. Like, we must not allow individuals or groups of people to undermine these peace talks. Like, this whole idea that, you know, we can't allow just one facet, one group, one individual to upset this progression that takes so much to get to, you know, I just, I just Mm -hmm. found that similarity. It's great. And it makes you wonder, like, did Picard learn that from Riva or did they have the same like diplomatic teacher or something? He learned it. Yes. You think he learned it from Riva in that episode? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to, I think it's, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about sort of the theme of this episode, which is racism Um, that we see, and I think we see some tremendous arcs with O'Brien and with Maxwell. So if you will indulge me, um, I think we start at the beginning of of the episode uh, when we hear language of others and those people. Like that type of language is used to distance ourselves from the Cardassians in this place. Like Maxwell even says, we're not the same. Like there's, you know, racism starts with having these differences that you are not like me, we are different. And I I think in the turbo lift where we see Darrow, he's like, he's trying to find some common ground. Oh, can you help us with this? And O'Brien totally shuts him down. If my commander says this, then I will do it. But who I choose to spend my free time with is my business. Like he's not even having any bit to do with the Cardassians. And it's sort of at that point, I think it's interesting that the writers, at least for me, I felt sorry for this Cardassian. Like, because they he was reaching out with this olive branch and was just completely shut down. Did you guys feel sorry for the Cardassians at that point? I, I yeah, I, and I think so. Again, we had talked about there's a spectrum, right? And and Darrow seems to be the most reasonable or, or sympathetic. I mean, I think like the the strange thing is in in some ways, for a long time to come, he's maybe the most sympathetic Cardassian that that we see, and. I think it is really something because I think they intended it to be, you know, just like an alien of the week, but they're putting a lot into it Mm -hmm. at that point in order to make you feel sympathetic. And I did feel sympathetic to them a Mm -hmm. a lot of the time, which was unusual. And maybe that was because you were supposed to think of them as, as an ally. Um, But yeah, it, I, I, I do feel some, some sympathy for him and trying to reach out. And he says in 10 forward that he's kind of, you know, tired of what's going on and wants to, to move on. Like through and through, he seems like somebody you can relate to, right? Hmm. Yeah, I feel sorry for him too as well. I mean, it's, it's difficult to have something like that. I mean, uh, when you're already branded as 
the enemy uh, and you know you're trying to do your best uh, I mean there's obviously uh, a few people out there that that are that are like um, you know willing to give that olive branch what you know be like a you know um, like like in this kind in this kind of uh, in this kind of uh, situation where you know there's three of them obviously three different types of people uh, that represents uh, you know um, the Cardassians and you know ha having that one person to uh, uh, bring out that olive branch to basically tear down the wall of hey you know we used to be enemies but I mean and, and it's it, it's it's hard it really it really is it's really hard to break down those walls and um, I mean I feel kind of sorry for that kind of person but you know at the same time it's commendable for that uh, for that one Cardassian to actually have the nerve and um, in a sense have the balls to freaking come uh, come across the table and and um, you know basically jump over that wall and and be like hey I'm here as a friend um, you know I have no, no ill will to you and uh, uh, and it's very commendable I, I absolutely like that I really although do. at the same time in the turbo lift Darrow is kind of asking for some insight into the transporter technology so it makes you wonder like uh, is he just trying to take some stuff or take some advantage but but I mean you could also see it in terms of you know their allies at this point and maybe they should share some information as part of their alliance but absolutely yeah, yeah. and it's it, it could be very well just be uh you know curiosity i mean i it very well could be i mean at the same time you know you got to be uh, on on your toes especially when you when you're dealing with that kind of technology too well and then later i think it's interesting in this arc that we see you know we're gonna stand off not do and then o'brien and keiko they're sharing dinner and and I think this stage of this arc, like Miles is recognizing the logic of not being racist because he's he's saying, well, there were some people in the room who don't like them, but the fighting is over. Why should I feel any hostility? Like, I feel fine. And then later he says, I like them fine, but watch your back around those people. Like, I think he's now at this stage where he's seeing the logic of it, but I don't think that he's really identifying his feelings and his emotions regarding the Cardassians. Like, now it's just more cerebral, like, well, the fighting's over. No one should have any hatred, but not identifying it with himself. Sort of like a subcon uh, subconsciously, he's not convinced. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So were you saying like during the episode, he's trying to convince himself how he should feel about them or? Well, I think he, well, how I read it, I don't even think that he believes that he is being racist. And so in his mind, it's just sort of this logical, well, the war is over. People shouldn't have any hostility. I feel fine about it, but he's not identifying with his actual feelings and emotions. And like, we get that realization, I think, in 10 Forward. And it's, again, this great scene that O'Brien has where he's describing his first kill and how that changes him. And and I think it's at this point later on in the episode where he is really feeling the impact that he's been carrying this racism, if you will, against Cardassia for so long that it took... I mean, I don't know which act it was in, but it took all that time for him to actually, you know, identify his feelings towards the Cardassians. Yeah, but I think based on, so how I felt about it and the way I was seeing it before, I, I don't think he really dislikes them. I don't think he's, 
he has racist feelings toward them, he is just reminded of the situation that he was in and manifests it in terms of, I think, some hostility and unfriendliness toward them. But I don't know if I'd go, I, I could be wrong, but I don't know if I'd go as far to characterize it that he has some racist feelings toward the Cardassians, again, at least in TNG, or at least in this episode that we see. See, I don't see... So just like what you said in the beginning of the episode, uh, Amy, it's like, you know, or not episode, this segment, I should say, um, you were talking about like, you know, others and those and distance themselves. And, you know, it's like, I really think that, you know, like, like, I mean, obviously the, the racist terms uh, for the Cardassians are what, Cardis and Spoonheads? Is that right? Cardis and Spoonheads? Yeah, well, and the, and, the, and the reason that I was saying, at least in TNG, is... You do hear O'Brien calling them Cardis in DS9, so yeah, <laughs> I think he has I mean, some of that there. That's meant, I mean, obviously, it's meant to be degrading and and you yeah. know dis- distance themselves, which you know, any war, it's the same thing. I'm sure they called us something um, over there in Iraq, and same thing, uh, same thing with us in Vietnam. You know, it's just you know, in order, it, it, I I don't see it. I mean, m- maybe some people do, but I don't see it as a form of uh, racism, and the reason why is because. It's not like you said. You know, it's a great line. Um, you know, it's not. It's not you. It's it's what I did. And, and you know, to just to differentiate the your emotions of what what happened over there versus what's going on now, like in peacetime or something like that, you have to separate the two. Um, I mean, like it's it's kind of hard to d- describe. Uh, but like um, I'm, I'm trying to remember my sociologist class, the sociologist class that I did about this. Um, but um, but I think yeah. when it gets into the the name calling part of it for a certain group of people, you usually do that because you want to uh, kind of delineate them as less than you. At least that's how I usually see it. Okay, no, and I agree. <laughs> no, I agree. No, I agree with you. No, I I totally agree with you on that one. Um, like because like. Okay, so I'm just gonna dip into what I what I know. So, um, okay. when I was over there, we called those who fired on us, and I hope to God this is not this is acceptable for me to say, but we called them Hajis, and that those were the ones that were um, the ones that shot at us, and then those the civilian the civilians that we used to call like anyone else outside of that we call Iraqis, um, and it was just to differentiate the difference between the two those who wanted to kill us. And those who wanted to help us out, and usually, uh, usually, uh, you couldn't differentiate the difference between the two. Sometimes, I mean, because sometimes there were children, and sometimes there were women, and sometimes, and most of the time, there were men. But like um, in this case, I mean, I, I mean, I, I saw the. I, I mean, believe you me, when I was out there, I saw. I, I didn't want to be like my Vietnam friends and called uh, them like Charlie. I mean, called everyone Charlie. I mean, it was just not, 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 I didn't think it was appropriate. So, um, but like when we're out there in the field, I mean, in order to, to, to identify those people uh, that were trying to kill us, that is not saying that those people, uh, we had to um, call them by a certain name. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I personally don't think it's racism. I don't. It's just a way to identify. That's how, that's how I see it. So, yeah. Well, I think in this episode, like when... Maxwell and O'Brien, they're treating the entire Cardassia based off of the one event, like, and then 
Miles, I think, is denying his own actions as being racist. I think that arc that we see is is a lesson to us. Like people, I think a lot of time looking at our country, like I would suspect that many people believe that they aren't racist because they haven't identified and they will give all these logical reasons. Oh, I'm not racist because... Uh, you know, and they have this logic to it, but they haven't identified with it. And the, sometimes they'll give you a reason like, well, I like this one person that's part of that group, so right. I can't be racist. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, I, a, it's a tough topic, I think, to talk about, a pretty charged is. topic. You know, and, and I think this episode really does a good job in bringing it up. Like when I was watching it, it's like throughout the episode, we hear this phrase lasting peace. So even though that they've signed this peace treaty, doesn't mean everyone's going to be all buddy buddy with each other. And so I'm asked, I asked the question, like, how do we end racism in our society? Like in America, we like slavery's over or whatever other thing, like if it comes down from the top down, is it going to be successful? And I sort of look at this episode as sort of a lower decks. Like we've got Miles and these, you know, Glenn Darrow, Glenn Tilla. Like those are the people that we're seeing. Even Picard and Maxwell, they're just captains. They're not the big wigs of the Federation. So it sort of, to me, seems like a grassroots. Like we have to change ourselves individually and it just can't come top down. Oh, you're going to be friends. You're not going to be racist mm. anymore. It can't come from the top down. Boy, I mean, that would be a really long conversation if you had to talk about. Yeah, yeah, that's a that. really long. How can really, really, how can really we end long. racism in our our world? Do you have five well, hours to talk I about? I think that? it starts. My point being is, yeah, I yeah. think it starts with the individual. You know, I no, think, I think it there's starts a lot of truth with to that. Miles. I think it starts with. You know, not only just looking at the logical part of it, but actually getting to the emotions. Like, why do I have these negative feelings? And, you know, I was raised this way or blah, blah, blah. And and coming to the terms where it's like, we need to treat others better. But that's on the assumption that everyone's logical or has reasoning or is chemically balanced or is uh, has never, um, you know, receive or receive these kind of traumatic events quite honestly i don't think racism will ever end and the, re and the reason why i'm saying that is because something like uh like world war three ending almost three quarters of the population and bringing everyone together to the near brink of annihilation that's what will end it not so the, the the star trek future that starts with wiping out a lot of people and then gets better there you go well i hope and I that's, hope that's how i think path. it would work but <laughs> And having the common, don't advocate that. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just no. I'm I'm just saying. Like I'm not saying that it should happen. I'm just saying. I I think. I mean. It, okay, I you're saying that there are things that are so ingrained there. Exactly, and and it's not. Slate. It's not in. It's not like. I mean, I'm not. I mean, that's assuming. I mean, assuming everyone's logical. Yes, I can understand that. That that would happen. But then again, there are people out there that are, you know, obviously. But even in Star Trek, we see Vulcans who are logical, and you could say are being racist. Exactly. Know, or... <laughs> exactly. And it's the same thing. I mean, it's just. I mean, I. I honestly. Do, I mean, so long as one person exists uh, with those kind of feelings, it will always spread. And you know, there are, there are people that are humble, or I'm not humble, that people that are, um, you know 
are sheep and will go and flock to that person, whether they, you know, just like, just like in this, uh, in this, uh, you know, if they go through a traumatic event and they all happen to have the same views, I mean, well, shoot, there you go. It's going to spread even further. I mean, uh, the more traumatic events happen and they uh, become more friends and deeper friends and, um, have th this kind of stuff happen to them. So, yeah, I think I mean, being logical isn't enough. Well, I think yeah. we have to deal, deal with our emotions and really face like we see Miles do as a, as a good example, you know, and sort of see what Maxwell has to face. You know, again, this example of dealing with the emotions on an individual, on a personal level, and not just pushing it off and saying, oh, well, it's logical not to. Like, it, I think real change in the, in the grassroots, like it has to be personal and it has to start with every individual. And it's it's sad because you're right, I don't see that every person is going to do that. And and like you're saying, this World War Three Armageddon type of philosophy, like that's going to put us all in the same survival category where now that's going to bond us because we need to survive. A common struggle, you know? for sure. Yeah, but, but yeah. okay. So I, I, I think the, the root of it, though, is that it's something that's learned. Like when someone's born or when they're, you know, a very small child, they don't really, as far as, as I've seen, like exhibit racist feelings. It's something that they learn either Agreed. from their parents or their friends or something they see on TV or whatever, right? And yeah. society. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so I think... You know the 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 solution involves i don't know again it's like a, a huge topic but you know some kind of like education about that so that people know what they're saying and how it affects other people and how their attitudes affect people and then passing that on to their kids and friends and mentors and and all of that so right like maybe something that right. yeah go ahead. well like, like i was saying you know you have one person that exists from that group it still will always be there that's why that's why i'm that's why I believe there's that billions it has of to us. Be. It's hard to like eliminate anything. Well, really, well yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can at least try yeah. to reduce it. The odds of yeah. actually destroy it completely is is astronomical. I mean, it, I mean, it's just, it's just, it cannot. It, it's just, I mean, like it's like I was saying, you know, an actual, um, uh, a, a common problem that I mean, not common problem. What did I say beforehand? Um, um, oh, great, I'm blanking out. Anyway, but like uh, it's just like you, you, they have to have a, co a common struggle. There we go. You know, to band everyone. I mean, like a, maybe an invader from another uh, world, and that we defeat them or something like that. Like ID four. But, or but even like that, that is not necessarily enough because there are people from different groups that have banded together and become allies, like in a war, like what happened with the Soviet Union and the U.S. But that didn't mean that they were going to be all friendly toward each other and love each other after. But that, a good you portion know? still hate us too. <laughs> so. <laughs> right so i mean i i think you know you're you're making a point that that's something you could never eliminate and that could be right but i think there are a lot of things we could do to reduce it significantly because it can be very harmful oh absolutely i mean you could definitely reduce it i mean uh, absolutely i'm not saying that it uh, that it can't be to a uh, to a level where you know it's almost near non-existent but i'm just saying like it can never truly go away that i wish that it would because uh, you know it's it's not good for anyone. I mean, like you said, it's it's a learned behavior, and if we just get rid of it, I mean, that's great. But I mean, that's wishful thinking, unfortunately. I mean, that would have to take like six hundred years or something like that for that to get to that point. I mean, to actually dilute it to the point where it's almost gone. Well, and I think 
the first step is to change yourself. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It starts, it always starts with you. Yeah. Well, not you, but you know yeah, what I mean? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there was some random thoughts just real quick, some highlights. Yeah, you haven't mentioned Troy yet. What's with that? I know, right? Well, <laughs> <laughs> so to all those people that keep saying, we don't see Troy do anything. She's not a real counselor. Okay, this episode highlights Troy and her profession. I love it. At the beginning, Troy's at her best. We don't really see her. But she's doing real counseling and doing her job that she's supposed to be doing. So um, Picard is instructed, has instructed her to stay close to the crew and monitor their behavior during this mission, during this terse time uh, with the Cardassians. Like, that is why we have a counselor on board. Like, it's such a great Troy moment. Now... Would I have liked to see her actually doing her job, doing the counseling? Absolutely. That's not what the episode is about. But just wanted to point out, Troy is doing her job very valiantly, and I love it. Yeah, we don't see anyone else on the the ship make trouble for them, so she must be doing a great job. Exactly. (laughs) I love, Amy, that that you're just imagining all the things that she's doing for that assignment. (laughs) (laughs) And then one other thing, like Miles and Keiko relationship, it's, is this an arranged marriage? Like, how does he <laughs> arranged not by know data, apparently. about yeah. her culture? Like, he doesn't know what she eats. He, she doesn't know yeah, what he's he like, eats. Oh, you don't eat muffins? And it's like, I don't think that's much part of her culture unless something's changed in a few hundred years. Well, and it's <laughs> like, didn't they go on dates? Didn't they ever go to dinner? Like, I don't know. It just <laughs> seems so weird that they were so confounded. Like, ooh, you eat that? What am I eating? I don't know. Maybe it was a rage marriage. I don't know. <laughs> well, Data introduced them. I, I don't know. I mean, you would think it, that even if it was... I mean, yeah, like you said, you know, dating-wise and all that kind of stuff, when you have... When you can replicate anything, practically anything that you want to eat or any style or whatever, it, you would think that they would at least know what their favorites are. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, who knows? So we see them in the episode before this and in Data's Day where they're getting married. I don't know. Maybe they've only known each other for a week and they're like, this is great. I don't even have to know what you eat. <laughs> we can get married. <laughs> maybe, you should, maybe you should take a couple notes from Jordy's and just take it from the... Uh, personal file or something like that there you go (laughs) oh anyways those were just some random thoughts i had (laughs) wow (laughs) all right guys well we've been talking for quite a while why don't you tell me richard your final thoughts on the wounded uh i absolutely love this episode it's one of my favorites um like i said you know i as i mentioned before that when this uh, episode came about was right before uh, Desert Storm was just about to commence, um, but like it's it definitely tells a story that uh, um, that you know that we all should uh, we all should to be thinking about what you know what we do what we say uh, to other people, especially when it, what we consider is racist or, or whatnot, um, you know you know versus using uh, tags like us versus them sort of thing, and um, for sure uh, uh, just uh, we need to watch out for that. I mean, um, and then also, just on a personal note, uh, as a veteran also with, um, who's uh, also uh, had PTSD as well, um, make sure that you uh, 
make sure if you have a veteran or know a veteran or family member that's a veteran that not they don't always want to talk to you they do they just don't know how so um if you have anyone that's been through that kind of traumatic uh, behavior or it actually and it's not just um a veteran it's anyone that's been through any kind of traumatic behavior um for sure sometimes they uh, most of the time they do want to talk they just don't know how so reach out. Yeah, I mean, this has always been one of my favorite episodes. And I knew that there would be a lot to talk about. I mean, honestly, when I was looking at the outline for things we hit added, I thought we'd be going for a good two or three hours. So thank you for uh, focusing the discussion, Amy. Thank you. <laughs> but the, yeah, there's a lot that you can get into that's that's really interesting. I mean, the, the Cardassians, the introduction of the Cardassians, I don't think we knew it at the time, but extremely important because it's part of the foundation of Deep Space Nine and, and a lot of the, the rest of the 24th century Star Trek. I think they are a pretty interesting species, even from what you learn here and then learning about that past conflict that that you want to know more about and that they're allies and they're going after, you know, this human commanded Federation starship. It's just kind of, it's, it's like, it's, it's a, a really fascinating exploration of the aftermath of a, of a conflict and also kind of the tension that can happen between recent allies and trying to see who's getting the advantage and all of that. I mean, I feel like there's so many layers we didn't even get to talk about. I mean, even within this 45 minute episode, when you peel it back more and more and watch it more and more, there's just so much there. And I'll be really interested to see the feedback that listeners have on, on the Babel conference, if there are things we missed or what they think about some of these topics, some of which are kind of charged topics. Uh, so I think we got into some really great discussions and I'm so glad that we talked about this episode today. Yeah, I too am so happy to have these discussions. I think we got into a lot of really good conversations. And, and Richard, I thank you for you being brave and, and adding your thoughts and your perspective, uh, something that I don't have. And so really appreciate you sharing with us. I love the arcs that we see with O'Brien. And I love the arc that we get to see with Maxwell and, and how that changes within just, you know, like you said, a 45 minute episode in the wounded I think there's so many good uh, topics that uh, we just brushed on lightly. Um, I would have loved to have seen more Cardassians in uh, in TNG, and I think this is just a, evident as to why, because they are very complex. There's history there, and I really do enjoy this episode. Well, it's been fun talking about the wounded. But that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM. To the journey! You really did reorient my thinking about the mess hall. Now I need to rewatch every scene with the mess hall and, and try to visualize Neelix's kitchen as the captain's dining room. I just assumed that when, when she said, this used to be my private dining room, that she meant the whole mess hall, like the entire room that they're in. Gigantic. How have I watched Voyager for what is now 23 years and not realized this? Warp 5. Gerard, why are you laughing at Gerard? Just miss. It sounds like, you know, an, an obnoxious nickname for like a rap star or something. I don't... See, I'm picturing he's like on, on uh, Kronos, he's like the representative for Targ Subway. Ger <laughs> you see, I, that's that, 
That's where I would have went with it. Not not obnoxious rapper, but guy who lost lots of weight. Literary treks. To me, and and I kind of thought this more as we got further into the book it really felt like a narrative computer game almost where you find all these clues and you visit these rooms and then you have to visit the rooms again and all that and we'll get into the main plot of what they do later in the book but yeah this setup i love the mystery i'm really enjoying like what's going on what's what happened here earl gray disagree that nemesis is the worst of the tng movies i would put insurrection and generations at the bottom way before nemesis like there's times when i actually prefer nemesis over first contact um you can send me the hate mail later i love stunned silence follows i love (laughs) nemesis i think there is so much good in it there's so many good themes and I just, the action and the philosophy and the characters, and I really, I really do love everything about Nemesis just as much as I love everything about First Contact. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. That helps others to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us, and we might read your email on the show. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. So, Amy, where can people contact you when you're not humming the tune to the song The Minstrel Boy? <laughs> Well, you can find me here on the network. I host The Edge with Patrick Devlin. That's our show about Star Trek Discovery. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson, but my favorite place is right there in the Babel Conference. Richard, where can people contact you when you're not pursuing Captain Maxwell in a Carda- in Cardassian space? He's mine. <laughs> well, <laughs> you guys could find me uh, on Facebook as well. Uh, I pop in here and there on the, Bible, uh, the Babel Conference. And I am also on Twitter. My handle is xransom. So, Justin, where can people contact you when you're not cosplaying as Golmaset? You well, would I make think... a great Golmaset. <laughs> now I want to see plat- it. You got to have the platform shoes. <laughs> well, you know, so I've and got this goatee, helmet. and he has this weird facial hair that goes up the side. I- I'd have yes. to work on that. I'd need to work on the headgear. I'd need to find like a brown leather sofa that I can, yeah. you know, carve up to use for the padding. Because exactly. it, has to, it has to be accurate to that Cardassian 
look and not another. So yeah, yeah no kidding, I'm going to have to think about that a lot. <laughs> but when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. Currently and still tweeting out my season five rewatch of The Next Generation. I'm getting there. Uh, and you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norma Lau, Justin Ozer, Michael Huter, and Thomas Appel. Thank you for supporting Trek FM and Earl Grey. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Things are only impossible until they're not. Today is a good day to die! Great joy and gratitude.